Are you ashamed to be a Christian today? Nope. I hope not at all. I hope you are so thankful to the Lord of glory for having called you out of this world, Amen. having translated you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, Amen. and make you one of his children and heirs to eternal life. Amen. While the devil and his angels who served in that heaven that we seek as the anointed cherub of God and his servants have lost their place, have been cast down to the earth and reserved in chains unto everlasting darkness and torment. Amen. What a difference the Lord can make. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's remind ourselves of a few simple words that we don't want to forget as long as we live. Ephesians 4.27 Neither give place to the devil. In the fourth chapter, he is going through a list of duties that we as Christians have to serve our Lord and to walk worthy of the vocation where we've been called, and that vocation is to be saints of the Most High God. And one of those duties is right here in this 27th verse, and it's simple, and it's short, and everyone has it memorized by now, don't they? I hope so. Neither give place to the devil. So this sermon is entitled, Give No Place to the Devil, and because we spent two services on it last Sunday, it's the third in this subject. But I want to tell you something. It is an important... I could have preached it in one sermon. I could have preached it in 20. And if you think I'm taking too many on it, ask the Lord to forgive me. But I believe it's important for us. Amen. Because we have a conflict that we forget. We have a life of ease in our country. No persecution, no trials to speak of, that cause us to relax and become distracted when we're told just the opposite. Turn again to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. You've said, you may say to yourselves, we turned there last Sunday. Yes, we did. I'm glad you remembered. I hope that you remembered that during this past 168 hours. Right. Especially the first two commandments of this verse. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be sober. Be vigilant. Our society, our country, our, na our nation, our city, our families, our schools, our places of employment are not sober. Life is a joke. Life is to, filled with amusement. Where they're all seeking pleasure and fun. When the Bible says be sober, that means to be serious because we have a grave matter at hand. And that grave matter is a conflict between the devil and his angels and the Lord Jesus Christ and his angels for our souls. Be sober. 
Life is serious. It is a life and death matter. But not of your mere physical body. Of your soul. Life or death with the Lord Jesus Christ in fellowship and union with Him while walking with God on earth is dependent upon us being sober. You relax and let down your guard. It's like the perimeter guard that I mentioned last Sunday. How quickly he can be taken out of the way by an enemy this subtle. Be vigilant. That means to be focused, to be alert, to be attentive, to be sensitive to what's going on in your life. Because, now we're, don't you like it when the Lord makes it real simple and he puts a because in there? Why we're to be sober? Why we're to be vigilant? Because your adversary. You don't have any enemies? You think you don't have any enemies? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. When he appeared before Job, when he appeared before the Lord, in the first and second chapters of Job, the Lord said, where have you been? And he said, walking to and fro in the earth. Looking for victims. And he's looking for victims right now. And he is snarling outside this assembly because the Lord Jesus Christ is being worshipped here in sincerity and in truth. And to every degree that we approach closer to God's perfection that he has sought for us and purchased for us, he snarls more at knowing that he has lost the congregation. As long as we're having a form of godliness without the power thereof, he is walking about thankful because he's been victorious. But if we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we're living holy lives and we're walking with God and we're hating sin, oh, he can't stand that. Right. Now it says in verse 9, Whom resist steadfast in the faith. And see, Second Peter... I mean, 1 Peter and the book of James are very similar. You'll find over there, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we have it right here also. The antidote to Satan is in the, is in the ninth verse, that we're to resist him. There's so much I would like to say of, that we said last week, but I've got to hope that you remember it. I would like you, though, to turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. He is your adversary. He's your enemy. How powerful is he compared to your strength? Let's look at Peter briefly. Peter was a pretty courageous Christian, wouldn't you say? Amen. Jumped out and walked in the water. Amen. Pulled a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, I know what he did, but there's a reason he did what he did. When the apostles were all sitting around in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, who stood up and took charge and settled things? Peter. Who preached boldly on the day of Pentecost and explained what was happening? Peter. Who wasn't one bit afraid to be whipped by the Jews in Acts 4 and 5 for preaching in the name of Jesus Christ? Peter. Who went and met with the first Gentile converts? Peter. But I want you to remember, I want you to look at this. Luke 22, verse 31. 
Luke twenty two thirty one, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Our adversary desires to have us, that he can sift us as wheat. If you are not sober, and if you are not vigilant, and if you are not listening right now, you're already giving place to the devil. He wants you not to listen. Because the more serious that I can get you through the word of God, the more you'll remember to resist him, the more I can convict you of your duty, the more you will resist him, and he'll flee from you. He doesn't want you to hear this. Satan hath desired to have you. Does he desire to have you? Yes, he does. Now, what did the Lord Jesus Christ do for Simon Peter and for his own honor and glory? He let Satan have him, but he prayed for him. I, Verse 32, but I have prayed for thee. Jesus could have put a hedge about Peter and Satan would have never got close to him. Jesus let Satan have Simon Peter, but he prayed for him, that thy faith fail not. Amen. Could Satan have taken his faith all the way down? Amen. Yes, he could have, but he didn't, because Jesus prayed for him. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And then Peter, in the boldness that we ought not to have, says in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. That is a presumptuous boldness that does not stand up with the testimony of Scripture that we are dependent on the Lord. Right. And the Lord said, Satan, the cock's not even going to be able to crow once before you've already denied me three times within 24 hours. Remember other examples of this. Date God needed an occasion against Israel because Israel had been living wickedly? So what sin did he use as a justification for punishing the nation of Israel? David numbered Israel. How did he get David to number Israel? He turned him over to Satan. And it says in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, that Satan stood up against Israel and David numbered them and the Lord killed 70,000 Israelites because of David's sin. The Lord turned David over to Satan just for a little while. Joab. Can, can you believe Joab giving David spiritual and righteous advice? He did. That was a switch, wasn't it? That's what happens. The Lord left Hezekiah once and he sinned also. The Lord leaves a man and will fall so fast. And brethren, that's one of the cures for fighting the devil is to beg God for strength and to ask him to pray for us and ask him to deliver us. Why do you think the Psalms are always praying for deliverance? David was pretty competent, naturally speaking. But he's always asking the Lord to deliver his soul from enemies, from fears, from torments. Because David knew all about the spiritual conflict and prayed for the Lord to give him the strength to combat it. This morning, do you all believe that there is a real 
true angelic conflict going on in this room. Last night we spent some time as our family talking about the nature of spirit beings. We are flesh and bone beings. Therefore, we're solids. And that solid wall is an obstacle for me. But angels are spirits. They move to and fro through that wall as if it weren't there. They're leaving and, they're leaving and entering this room. Witnessing everything that is said and everything that is done. They can see how well you're paying attention and who's sleeping. They can see who's turning to the passages and who's saying amen, they hear it. It is real. But we are so afflicted with these eyes that we think if we can't see it, what do we have? What's the expression in our language? Out of sight, out of mind. But brethren, that's why we have the preaching of the gospel to put in your mind what doesn't come there by sight. And it's by the the word of God. There is a conflict of angelic beings. The good angels that God elected and preserved in their first estate and those that fell from that estate and followed the devil in his rebellion of pride. Do you recall, and a brother mentioned this to me last Sunday, that it might help if you don't believe this, Elisha was a great man. If you, want, if you want to get excited about boldness in prayer, go read the first few chapters of 2 Kings. Elijah was as... You'd say Elijah, if you didn't know about Elisha, you'd say, that's as great of a prophet as there could be. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But when Elijah was to be carried up into heaven, Elisha stood there beside him and Elijah said, what do you want before I go? And that young man that had taken care of his master for many years, said, I want a double portion of your spirit. Amen. And Elijah said, you've asked for a hard thing. This is Second Kings chapter 2. You can read it. It's glorious. You want to get pumped up in your prayer life? Go read it. I want a double portion of your spirit. Elijah said, you've asked for a hard thing, but if you see me leave, you're going to get it. If you don't see me leave, you're not going to get it. And all of a sudden, you know, I think it's, there's a verse right there that says, and Elisha saw it. And what it was, was the chariot of God coming down to take Elijah up into heaven. And Elisha cries out, the horsemen and the chariots of Israel, my father. And there goes Elijah. And we have Elisha. And Elijah's mantle fell to the ground. Elisha looks at it for a minute. Picks it up. Now they were on the other side of the Jordan River. Right. You know how they got to the other side of the Jordan River? It wasn't with a raft. They had approached that Jordan River. There were 50 prophets standing behind them who were too timid to be like Elisha. Never forget it. Right. There was one Elisha, but there were 50 average prophets. Elijah comes to that River Jordan, takes his mantle, smacks the water, It divides and they walk through on dry ground. When they get to the other side, it closes back up. Elijah's carried up into heaven. His mantle falls off. 
Elisha looks at it. Now, Elisha's a bold man. Right. He picks up that mantle, turns around, walks back to the Jordan River, smacks the river and says, where's the God of Elijah? And the water parts. And he walks back through. And the 50 prophets say the spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. Amen. Isn't that great? Amen. Now, that man's laying in bed. And the Syrians are having trouble taking Israel because every time they plan an attack in their secret war council where only top security clearances are allowed, every time they form their army, Israel avoids them. And after three times of this, the king of Syria sits down with his closest men who are in that top security council and says, how do they know what we're doing? I think one of you is a traitor. And one of them speaks up and says, no, sir, there are no traitors here, but there's a prophet in Israel that knows the words from your bedchamber. Isn't that great? Elisha. They said, where does he live? Dothan. Now, you're not going to find Dothan except in a map of Alabama. (laughs) Dothan Dothan was small. Small! What else do you know about Dothan in the Bible? Lay it on me. Small. Not one of the big cities. And the armies came from Syria and surrounded that city. And Elisha had a servant young man who rose up that morning to prepare breakfast for Elisha who was still in bed. And he went out and saw this massive army around this little tiny village surrounding it. And he runs back in, Master, Master, what's going to happen to us? And Elisha said, don't wake me up so early. There's more with us than with them. And he said, Lord, open the young man's eyes. And the Lord took the brethren, we have those scales, and by the preaching of the word of God, I wish I could take them away this morning. We have those scales on our eyes, but if you'll believe by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you the truth from the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, believe this. The scales came off, and the young man looked, and all about that city in the mountains and the hills were the flaming chariots of the angels of God. So that Elisha could say, they that are with us are more than with them, and roll back over and go to sleep. Do you believe all that? If you believe all that, we can roll over and go to sleep. And brethren, I'm... You say you've got off the track. Oh, no, I haven't. Do you know what the devil loves to sow? Fear and doubt and worry. Believe. What do you think that Old Testament is there for? If the New Covenant was so superior that we don't need the Old Testament lessons, they would have been dropped off. And we'd have 27 books instead of 66. We have those because Romans 15 says that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Lord, open his eyes. What a great story. Elisha comes walking out to him and says, you're at the wrong place. Now they were looking for Elisha. He says, I'm not the man you're looking for. He says, Lord, make them all blind. So an army of 750,000 men goes blind. He says, follow me. 750,000 men line up behind Elisha and follow him. He leads them into the capital city of Israel, Samaria, inside the city walls, up to the throne of the king of Samaria, 
the king of Israel, and says, Lord, open their eyes. And they all open their eyes, and they realize they're dead meat. Amen. They're in the middle of Samaria. That's Elisha. Amen. And the king says, Father, should I slay him? Father, should I slay him? Go read it in your Bibles. He repeats it twice. He's, he wants to kill him so bad in greedy zeal. And Elisha says, come on, they're just prisoners. Feed them. Let's have a feast, then we'll send them home. And Elisha showed, showed mercy to them. They fed them well, filled their bellies, sent them home. And you know what the Bible says? This is the power of Elisha. Right. The Syrians came no more into the coast of Israel. Right. Love your enemies. Is there a good lesson in that? Love your enemies. Let God take care of them. I said all that, and I went through all that, because I hope in the last five minutes, I've just encouraged your hearts to believe. Can you believe as much as the young man whose eyes were opened? There is a conflict like that going on. And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the angel of the Lord encamping round about you and delivering you from all trouble. Nothing should move a Christian. Nothing. Now, last night, our study in preparing for this solemn assembly, isn't every assembly of the saints solemn? Amen. Was to read the first two chapters of Job and the last chapter of Job. And when you look there in Job and you consider what Satan did to him, what a blessing we have to know about the angels and that conflict that goes on. If you can't see this spiritual conflict, we're blind. We want to be like Job, so that when Satan comes and takes away our money, what do we say? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When the Lord takes away our family, we say, the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. When the Lord takes away our health, three great devices of Satan, economic problems, family problems, physical health problems, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Can we be like that? You have been delivered, brethren. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Do any of you have neighbors that have not given Jesus Christ one moment's thought in their lives that you can see? What made the difference? I want to tell you what made the difference. Because Satan is able to take you captive at his will whenever he wants to, were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. I read of a perfect minister in 2 Timothy chapter 2, doing all that he ought to do, verses 24 and 25, and yet it says in the last half of verse 25, that even when that minister is doing all that he should do, he still must hope in this. If God, 2 Timothy 2.25, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. The devil takes men captive at his will, 
And unless God grants them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and delivers them, they will oppose themselves, though opposing yourself is really ridiculous. But there is no force of argument nor eloquent appeal that can be made to take a man who's opposing himself under the influence of the devil and deliver him. It's by the grace of God. If he'll peradventure, and he doesn't always grant repentance. In fact, it's few that are delivered. Now the Apostle Paul was sent out to turn men's men from darkness unto light and from the power of Satan unto God. But I want to tell you who, who was with the Apostle Paul and it was the mighty God arresting hearts because I read, for instance, in Acts 16, 14, and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended unto the things that Paul spoke. That makes all the difference in the world. Eloquence doesn't get the job done. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. We must rely on the Lord. We looked at some examples last week of what it means to give place to the devil. We want to resist and fight and oppose the devil in our lives. His goal is to take you away from walking with God and living a holy life in order that the sons of God in this world will be a disgrace to the glory of Christ and set up to his honor and praise. He hates Jesus Christ. He is no longer allowed in heaven. He can't do anything to the Son of God who sits on the throne in heaven. But he can certainly come down, confuse and attack and devour us if we are not resisting him. And therefore, the kingdom of Christ ends up being a stench so that Jesus Christ is walking among his churches and seeing churches that have lost their first love, churches that are lukewarm instead of hot or cold, churches like the Galatians who think that you're saved by being circumcised because they've given place to the devil. We want to resist that. We want to give no place to the devil in our lives. We were looking at examples. Remember Eve. We'll not turn there, but I hope you remember Eve. I hope you remember the sons of God who called upon the name of the Lord in Genesis chapter 4, but by Genesis chapter 6 were enamored with the daughters of men, and God destroyed the earth with a flood. Because Christians were marrying worldlings. How about Lot pitching his tent toward Sodom? That's giving place to the devil. That gives the devil a little place in your life to attract you and tempt you and seduce you into sinning. And where does Lot end up? Sitting on the city council of the city of Sodom. And when God pulls him out of the city of Sodom, I said that correctly, pulls him out of the city of Sodom, his sons-in-law will not even listen to him because it's like one mocking. It's the little boy who cried wolf because he had given place so much to the devil, his testimony meant nothing. We looked at Joseph's brethren. Joseph's brethren saw that their father loved Joseph, and for good reason, Joseph's father loved Joseph. Joseph was the son of Rachel and a son of his old age. But they envied him, brethren. That's giving place to the devil. What follows from envy? Hatred. What follows from hatred? Murder. And if it wouldn't have been for Reuben interfering, they would have murdered their brother Joseph. How does it all start? Giving place to the devil. Joseph was a goodly man, though he went down, and he was in the arms of Potiphar's wife. 
in a foreign country on a business trip, we could say, with no one around who would ever tell. Did he give place to the devil? No. Glorious man. Glorious man. Turn to Numbers chapter 22. Let's look at an inglorious man. These examples are valuable to, to, to see how men play with righteousness and sin, and so do we if we are not sober and vigilant. Numbers chapter 22 is about Balaam. Balak is the king of Moab. Balak is afraid of the Israelites. Balak knows that Balaam is a prophet and that who he blesses is generally blessed and who he curses is generally cursed. So Balak tries to hire Balaam. Balak sends some of his ambassadors to Balaam with money. And they say, Balak would like you to curse Israel. Balaam says, let me ask the Lord. The Lord says, don't go. He says, I can't go. They go back. The second time they come back again. Except that he sends more noble men. And he offers Balaam more. Now the Lord has already told him another time, don't go with the men. Now watch how men play with sin. Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. Verse 12. Let's get the statement of the Lord to Balaam. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. That's the first visit. Then come down to verse 19. I don't have time to teach you the whole lesson of Balaam. Come down to verse 19. This is the second visit. Now therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. That's the verse I want to focus on, right there. God had already told him, and we do that sometimes, we play with sin. God has already said what we shouldn't do. Well, let me think about it. Somebody will invite you to do something, or you'll be tempted to do something, and you'll say, let me think about it. Balaam says, why don't you spend the night, and I'll see what the Lord wants me to do. Well, that night, the Lord said, go with them. But it wasn't in sincerity. It was to judge Balaam. It was a judgment. If you play around with sin... When you, when you have the clear word of God like that, it should be an absolute in your life. We cannot play with sin that is giving place to the devil. We can't say, I need to think about it. Well, let me see if I can reason through this matter. If there's even a question, what's the safe policy, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to resist the devil? If it's doubtful, don't do it. Give him the glory. Amen. Balaam was judged severely for it. The Lord tried to kill him in the way. Turn to Judges chapter 16. Judges 16. How many of you think that it is ridiculous that a man who has all of his strength in his hair would go to sleep on a prostitute's lap and tell her three times false reasons for his strength 
And every time wake up, finding that she had exercised those three false reasons against him, the fourth time would tell her the truth so that he would lose his strength. Is that opposing yourself? Is that being taken captive by the devil at his will? Isn't Isn't it one of the most incredible stories in the Word of God? How does it happen? Does it happen in one easy transaction? Or is it a breakdown of righteousness by giving place to the devil? Judges 16, verse 1. Then went Samson to Gaza, that's one of the five capital cities of the Philistines, and saw there an harlot, and went in unto her. Judges 16, 1. There is giving place to the devil right there. Choosing a harlot of the Philistines, and he escaped from this city. The Lord's merciful, isn't he? And do you know how men reason? How do men reason? I'm I'm teaching you the devices of Satan. It's Psalm 50. You can go read it there. You you companied with adulterers, and I did nothing. You thought that I was altogether one such as thyself. He goes in the city, sleeps with a prostitute of the Philistines. The Philistines know that he's there, lock the city up, thinking they can keep him there until morning. When they can kill him, he gets up in the middle of the night after he's had his pleasure with the woman, finds the huge city gates locked, picks them up, tears them out of their foundation, puts them on his shoulders, carries them up to the top of a hill, says, good morning, guys. In the strength of the Lord. But he'd already given place to the devil. And so then we read about Delilah. And when you, when you look at Samson, and you say, how could a man do that? It doesn't start with thinking, I want to give my strength to the Philistines because I really want to grind corn for the rest of my life with two burned out eye sockets. It doesn't work that way. It works with, they've got some good looking women in Gaza. Giving place to the devil. When you give place to the devil and the Lord steps back and lets him have control of you, you are taken captive by him at his will, and you will lay the fourth time in a prostitute's lap, and she'll say, please tell me where your strength is, after you know that she's out to destroy you, and you'll say, it's in my hair. And you'll wake up and say, I'm going to go out as at other times, because you've been deceived. Your heart is totally deceived, and you do not go out as other times, and all of a sudden, your sin is found to be hateful. What a lesson. First Samuel 18. We could have spent more time there, but it doesn't matter. You know the story of Samson. Look at 1 Samuel 18. This is a horrible story. King of Israel. First king of Israel. Modest man. Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. The Lord gave him a new heart. He was a timid man. He was eight feet tall in a nation of six-foot men, or seven feet tall. The Bible tells us that from his shoulder and upward, he was taller than any man in Israel. But he was timid. When they were trying to make him king, he was hiding in the stuff, the Bible says. That's your King James. So accurate, just like we talk today. He was hiding in the stuff. But the Lord gave him a new heart. What a a change when the Lord gives a man a new heart. And, you know... 
You can pray for a new heart if you need it in some way. If you haven't been the father that you've wanted to be or the husband you've wanted to be or the son or the employee, or if you're now you're put in a position of management and you wish you were a better manager, ask the Lord for a new heart. Right. He can do it. Yes. He gave Saul a new heart. They needed to go to war against the Philistines. He took an ox, chopped it in 12 pieces, put each piece into a Federal Express envelope, and sent it to each tribe of Israel and said, if you don't have your whole army here to defeat the Philistines, this is what all your flocks are going to look like Amen. and herds. Right. Now that's a different man, isn't it, from one that was hiding in the stuff? What a blessing to be made the first king of Israel and to be anointed by Samuel. Yes. But then he's camped one day on the side of that valley, and out comes a champion of the Philistines, and he's afraid. He gives place to the devil. Fear. And didn't trust the Lord. Along comes the sweet psalmist of Israel, who did trust the Lord. Right. Said, King, I don't see anything for me to be worried about. I've kept my father's sheep for a good while. When a bear came out, tore him up with my bare hands. When a lion came out, I did the same thing to him. This uncircumcised Philistine that's blaspheming, my God is going to be no contest. Amen. Let me at him. Right. And he didn't do it in his strength. He said, for the sake of the Lord of hosts Amen. and the God of Israel, that they can all know that there's a God in Israel. Amen. But what happens is David goes out and slays his Goliath and comes back into Israel carrying that giant deformed head in one hand and his sword in the other. And all the women begin singing a song, celebrating a great victory. Saul has slain his thousands, giving Saul credit, but David his ten thousands. Now right there, now listen, brethren. When you see something good happen to your brother or your sister in this assembly... Are you excited for them, or are you envious? Right. Saul was envious. 1 Samuel 18, verse 9, And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And if you'll go back to the previous three verses, you'll find out I've just told you the story. Envy! What does he try to do? What does envy lead to? We've already been through this once. I'm going to keep going through it today. Envy leads to hatred, and hatred leads to murder. You say, I could never commit murder. You are just like Peter. Lord, I would never deny you. I would go to the death for you, Lord. If Jesus isn't praying for you, you would do anything. You would cut your own mother's throat. You say, I couldn't do that. You're a whole lot closer to it than everyone else in the congregation because you're saying you couldn't do it. That's right. This king who had a heart change is envious. That envy leads to hatred. That hatred leads to him trying to nail David to the wall with a javelin when David was his most loyal subject. Right. We went over David. How did he sin with Bathsheba? Because he sat down and he read the Ten Commandments and said, I want to break the seventh one tonight? No, because when kings went forth to battle in 2 Samuel 11, 1, he didn't go. And the Bible tells us that very carefully. We looked at it very carefully last Sunday night. And look at the sin that it led to and the trouble in his life. We read, it, we read about Solomon. 
Solomon had a vision from God, and God said, Ask what you will. What a blessing. But Solomon had already given place to the devil before the vision. How had he given place to the devil? Married Pharaoh's daughter. 1 Kings chapter 3. The devil already had a place in Solomon's life. And though God blessed Solomon, God blessed Samson. Solomon did not humble himself and have a personal revival and divorce that woman and send her back to Egypt. And therefore he ends up offering seed or at least building the temples to Molech for his wives. And his heart was turned away from the Lord. How many of you remember the story of King Ahab? King Ahab looked out his window one day and saw a beautiful vineyard. Saw. For all you shoppers. He saw a vineyard that he wanted. He goes to the owner of the vineyard whose name was Naboth. Says, Naboth, I'd love to buy your vineyard. I'll pay you whatever you want for it. That's fair enough. Good man. I'm honest. I'm just. I don't want to take anything from anyone. I'll pay you whatever you want. Naboth said, This is the land given to my tribe and to my family and to me by the Lord. I cannot sell it. Ahab should have said, Thank you for reminding me about those commandments that Moses gave us. I love you and I'm going to promote you. Call for a feast because I'm going to have a portion sent from the king's table to your house tonight. Now, you're all smiling at me like I'm sounding like a fool, but isn't that what he should have said? To have citizens like that in a nation would make the nation great. But he goes home and does something that none of you would ever do. He gets depressed. I want everyone in here to listen to me. Everyone. Everyone. He gets depressed because he doesn't have something that someone else has. And he lays on his bed and turns his face to the wall. And his wife comes in and says, what's wrong? Nothing. Nothing. And she asks him enough times that he finally says, I wanted Naboth's vineyard and he won't sell it to me. Now, when you say something like that to a Jezebel, she'll help you out. She goes and kills Naboth and says, here's the keys to the vineyard. So we've got murder that resulted from covetousness, that resulted from looking and not respecting the commandments of God. Or they get depressed because their life isn't where they think it should be. That's giving place to the devil. It will lead to covetousness and other sins. And Ahab sold himself to do wickedness. He should have looked at Naboth and said, Brother, thank you for telling me that. And blessed him and honored him for keeping Ahab from sinning and for being such a noble character. Isn't Naboth noble? But Nabal's blood was in the ground. But I want to tell you, the Lord doesn't ever miss a transaction like that. Brethren, He doesn't miss the transaction. And he said where that blood went into the ground, the dogs are going to lick Ahab's blood out of a chariot, and they're going to eat his wife. And so Jehu killed 
Now, Ahab was killed in battle by a chance arrow, and the dogs licked his blood out of the chariot. And Jehu rode his horse over Jezebel and splattered her blood on the walls. And the dogs ate her while he was eating supper. And when he came out to bury her, all that was left was a skull, two hands and two feet. Praise the Lord. But the sin all started with looking and wanting. When we see a brother or a sister honored in some way with looks from God, with intelligence, with money, with a promotion, with a new car, with a better house, what is it that twists you or me? into our joy being even dulled. Your joy should not be dulled by something good happening to someone else. It should be increased. You should rejoice. You say it's perverse. Perverse, naturally speaking, it's perfectly consistent, spiritually speaking. Because obviously God's made a difference, and if God made the difference, we should be excited about it. God must have some glorious, perfect purpose in it. Right? Therefore, we should be excited. You say, but the last four times I've tried something, it's failed. And that person doesn't even put the effort into it that I put into it, and it works. You trying to be God in the matter? Rejoice with the brother that has it blessed when he doesn't put into it the same effort you do. I'll tell you something if you want to learn a quick lesson. Bless that brother and send him a card and commend him, and it'll work the next time for you. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. (laughs) Trivia. Bible trivia question. When did God deliver Job from his captivity of the devil? My sons can't answer. When did God deliver Job from the captivity of the devil? It's in the 42nd chapter. What did he do that the moment he did it released him from the devil? He forgave his three friends. If you'll go look at that in Job 40, we're not going there. I just wanted to throw that out because I'm racing over it. It's beautiful. He forgave... What would you do to th- when you were in your deepest moment of grief if three guys come into your hospital room and pulled up chairs and sat there and looked at you and for the next 30 chapters told you what a rotten, stinking scoundrel you were? What would you feel like? What, what would you, wouldn't, you be, wouldn't you want... You'd need to be vis- restrained by some Velcro straps from reaching over there and choking the life out of those three guys. They were horrible! You know, Job said, you're miserable comforters, and that's when they just got started. (laughs) They were horrible. All they kept saying was, come on, tell us your secret sins. God's judging you for some secret sin. You're the world's greatest hypocrite. That's why the judgment's so great. And God comes to him and says, pray for your three friends. Go read it. Go read it. Job prayed for his three friends, and as soon as he prayed for his three friends, that's why I just said, The Lord watches how we treat one another. And if you will treat someone who is your personal enemy, though they were friends, they certainly, with friends like that who needs enemies, but if you will love your enemies, the Lord will bless you. Because it is such an incredible sign of the grace of Christian charity. To pray for forgiveness for your enemies. 
Isn't Jesus the greatest example of that of all? Hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, following that example in Acts chapter 7, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. If you can do that, you can, there's deliverance in that. If you will learn to love your enemies, I just thought I'd throw that out. If you go, look, if you go read Job 42, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 4, I read about a man named Joseph in verse 36 of chapter 4 who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now this man Barnabas, who becomes one of Paul's traveling companions and who is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, had land, verse 37, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, Apostles, do with this money whatever you need to do to take care of the needs of the church and the poor. But I read in verse 1 of chapter 5, a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. They saw what Barnabas did. They wanted to do something noble, but they had a little tiny bit of covetousness. And so their giving was not without a lie. And the circumstances may not apply directly. But, the circum- but what we must do is always be analyzing our heart. If our heart is pure and single in its purpose. Amen. Never a false motive in giving. Always wanting to give in a way that our left hand does the giving. And our right hand doesn't know what our left hand did. That's what the Savior said. Because if you do it for another motive, you're playing with a dangerous thing. Because Ananias and Sapphira fell down dead. They gave place to the devil. Look at what they were... Listen. Is giving a large portion of the sale of property to the apostles a noble and good thing? But was it done with a pure heart? No. They had a lie in it. They had given place to the devil. And though they were doing something good... Brethren, does that... Does this little illustration mean anything to you at all? Coming into the house of God and giving Him worship, but not doing it with a single heart and a heart that is fervently sold out to Him. You are playing with the Most High God. And those two fell down dead. Turn to James chapter 5. We're going to look at just a few more verses of Scripture, then tonight we'll take up the armor and finish this study. James chapter 4, we want to read the statement. We've looked at the illustrations. We've looked at plenty. We've seen small compromises made with sin in the heart and in the life, in the place where you live, with money, with envy, with women. And it gives place to the devil, and those men end up in destruction because of their sins. But now we come to the application we We did some of it last Sunday. We're going to do some more right now, a few minutes. And tonight, it'll be all the application of this doctrine of resisting the devil, including the armor of Ephesians chapter 6. In James 4, 7, I read, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is a promise. There's a commandment and a promise in that little sentence. Resist the devil, that's the commandment, and he will flee from you, that's the promise. 
Jesus resists the devil. The devil said, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Jesus quoted scripture and said, man shall not live by bread alone. That's not the most important thing to me right now. The most important thing is to please and serve God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, not out of your mouth. Is that resisting? Then the devil takes him up to a pinnacle of the temple and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I can give you all of these because they're given into my power to give to whomsoever I will. I can give you all this glory if you'll simply worship me. And Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. Is that resisting the devil? Amen. That's beautiful resisting, resistance of the devil. The third temptation is he takes Jesus up onto the temple, and he says, Listen, if you're the Son of God, have you ever been dared? Have you ever been, you know, when you were in grade school and someone dared you to do something, does that make you want to do it? Well, the devil dared Jesus Christ. If you're the Son of God, there's a verse over there, and he didn't quote it incorrectly. He quoted a promise of God about the Son of God. That if he was to fall, the angels would bear him up, lest he dash his foot against a stone. Now, that is a tough temptation. He is. Cha- Do you know how knowledgeable Satan is? Did Satan know he was the Son of God? Absolutely. But he was daring the Lord Jesus Christ to take up a promise of Scripture and cast himself off the temple and see if it would be fulfilled. Jesus knew it would be fulfilled if he did it in obedience to God. But he wasn't, we're not supposed to tempt the Lord our God. So Jesus said, Thou shalt, Satan, it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Get thee behind me. Now that's resistance. That's glorious. That is resisting the devil. When you see something or feel something or are tempted by something towards sin in your life, stop it, identify it, and resist it. Identify, I know what that is, and I am not going to give place to that. Get thee behind the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord rebuke thee, Satan. The Bible says that I'm not supposed to do that. The Bible says give, no, make no provision for the flesh. And so you don't do it. The Bible says I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. So let's say you've played the fool. You've gone and dropped six fifty at Hollywood 20. And you're going into something that you have just convinced yourself that you ought to consider, like Balaam. And so you're in there and it comes up and you all of a sudden... You have a little tiny voice inside you saying, you know this is wrong. You know this is wrong. I'll tell you how to resist the devil. It's real easy. Doesn't everybody know? Get up and walk out. Now that's for the Balaams that got in there in the first place. You say you're speaking awfully hard against Hollywood 20. Once in a while there's a good movie. Find it for me and watch it with me. We'll see how good it is. Okay? Yeah. I love analytical problems where I'm supposed to be the bad guy. And we'll see if we can't find something wrong with it. Because I won't have to work very hard and it won't take me very many minutes. <clears throat> That's resisting the devil. 
You know, it's very, very easy on a subject of movies to resist the devil. This simply. I'm not going to watch anymore. You say, that's too hard. Tell that to Samson. Tell that to King Saul. Tell that to anyone else in the Bible who played with sin. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, is Romans 13, 14. That is a commandment. Make no provision. And there's plenty of provision in that ungodly place where Satan spews his religion. And his religion is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5 and see the same words. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8 is what we read earlier about being sober and vigilant because of our adversary the devil, walking about seeking whom he may devour. And the ninth verse says, Whom, that is the devil, resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. This is an epistle written to Jews. There's a stranger scattered abroad, Jews that were in every nation, by Peter, and he says, the Gentile, your Gentile brethren, are having the same difficulties in opposing the devil. Make sure you're doing it. Whom resist steadfast, not moving, holding firm in resisting the devil. Brethren, we are in a spiritual war. And you may not like me mentioning things like movies and stuff, which is, which is kind of intruding into your personal life. But brethren, we cannot play. We cannot afford to play with sin. Because if you play with a movie, you will end up somewhere else. And I know what I'm talking about, and the Bible tells me I know what I'm talking about. It is so ridiculous to have such carnal Christians that any of you would have any ounce of your soul resenting what I'm saying. You are so carnal to have anything inside you welling up, wanting to resist me. You should be rejoicing. Because you should love righteousness and hate wickedness. And our entertainment industry is not the result of a board of directors of God-fearing men sitting around a table trying to be creative and come up with holiness-producing, God-fearing means of entertaining America. They are children of the devil. And they are sold out to making money off of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are satanic. See, I don't need to know anything about a room in London, England, where the Rothschilds sit with around a 13-chaired table, where Lucifer comes and sits at the head of that table, like all the conspiracy, conspiracy people think. I've heard all that stuff all my life. That's, there's no threat to that. Let Lucifer come down and sit at a table with the 12 members of the Rothschild family. That is no threat to Christianity. That was Johnny Todd's little story, tapes given to me by the early days of the Detroit church. Johnny Todd turned out to be a worshiper of the devil. And a whole lot more, but that I won't say it from the pulpit. It has to do with Girl Scout troops. But anyway, let's go back to the real threat. The real threat is the men in Hollywood and other places sitting around to make a dollar off of the three 
categories of sin that Satan uses. The lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything in a movie can be summed up in those things. While I'm on movies, and I know I've mentioned this before, but brethren, we have a war to fight, and to fight it coming in here on Sundays, and hearing what God's done for us, and loving the Lord, and singing songs loudly and enthusiastically. Brethren, I feel like we're like an Ananias and Sapphira. We're in here playing with a double heart, and we can't be. We have to have a single heart, which means we walk out of this place. We hate sin as much as we do when we're in here. And it's consistent with the way that we're trying to worship God when we're in here. Now, some of you know that I, and this is three or four years ago now, greatly liked the movie Braveheart. Does watching Braveheart give place to the devil? Is the Pope a Catholic? How about parental honor? Does Braveheart honor parents? Or were parents violated in that movie? What kind of religion was in the movie Braveheart? Catholicism. Did Braveheart, by its soundtrack and its drama and its design, lead you to want William Wallace to commit adultery with the Princess of Wales? Yes, it did. Promoted it. Made you want it so that when it got to it, success had been achieved. Later, when the king of England is laying there on his deathbed and she whispers in his ear, that's gratifying. What about the nudity? Does that nudity that's in Braveheart promote your relationship with your wife? How about the faithlessness? And this is what bothers me the most of all movies. Far more than nudity. Faithlessness and hopelessness. The devil wants Christians to live without faith and without hope. Therefore, movies like Braveheart are done entirely in the flesh. There is never a sincere and sober and solemn prayer to God. It is done in the flesh. Any prayers they have are their pagan little rituals to the Catholic Church and their ancient superstitions of Scotland. It's faithlessness. When you watch a drama, I don't care what it is. If you watch a drama and, and, you know, to make a drama, you've got to have evil circumstances. And when those evil circumstances are brought into the drama, if there is not a response of trusting the Lord and crying out to the Lord for help and seeking the Lord, then you are, what, you are being conditioned to trust the flesh and to forget God. It's a movie, it's a religion of hopelessness. It's a religion of faithlessness. When you get to the end of one of these movies and you wonder, you're kidding, that's where we're left? Hopeless? That's the best? That is satanic, because Satan has no hope, and he cannot stand it when he has Christians in this world with the helmet of the hope of salvation on, who are trusting in the Lord, and who have much more than this little world has to offer. You cannot watch movies like that and be spiritually minded. 
They are designed to make you carnally minded. To be spiritually minded is to hate those things and to love what Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 would tell us, and that is that we're to be thinking and considering things that are virtuous, good, holy, pure, of good report, and full of praise. Do you read novels instead of watching television? Are they perfect? Do they promote the Lord Jesus Christ and spirituality, or are they a little polluted? If it's a little polluted, you're pitching your tent towards Sodom. Brethren, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. He's looking for lazy Christians. He's looking for Christians who do not want to take a strong stand. He's looking for Christians who don't want to fight. He's looking for Christians that don't want to hate sin. If you're hating sin and wanting to fight and wanting to take a stand for righteousness, he'll flee from you. Your life will be relatively easy, especially if you're praying for the Lord to bless you. Much more can be said. We'll say it tonight. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for us to be sober, to be vigilant, and to resist the devil and he will flee from us.